Here on Gadget Lab, we dive deep into the tech universe, tackling questions like, is giving companies access to your genetic material a good idea? And are the latest phone releases really that different than the last ones? We want to help you make informed decisions about what is worth your attention. And here's something that is undeniably worth your time, a digital subscription to Wired. Lucky for you, we are giving Gadget Lab listeners an exclusive discount, 20% off an annual subscription to Wired. Just visit Wired.com and use the promo code GL20 to get 20% off a digital subscription. Use GL20 to get exclusive access to stories on the latest innovations like AI, deepfakes, and VR, as well as today's most talked about people in technology. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive Home and Auto Policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Lauren. Mike. Lauren, do you remember the first video that you ever uploaded to YouTube? I don't remember the exact video, but I want to say it was probably a really crappy short film. Oh, okay. I was a member of this Brooklyn group of filmmakers for a while, and we were uploading our shorts to YouTube and... Yeah, they weren't very good. I mean, mine wasn't very good. Other people probably made great stuff. Is it still there? Because I absolutely need to see this. Uh, maybe it's private. I'll I'll find something to send to you. How okay. about you? Do you remember the first video you uploaded? Oh, yeah. YouTube? It's of my cat. Yeah. Which cat? Poppy. The oh, the one, one who's still alive. <laughs> <She's>, <laughs> yes. Poppy has lived as long as YouTube. She has. Wow. YouTube's had quite the history. We're going to talk all about it. Let's do it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gadget Lab. I am Michael Calori. I'm a senior editor at Wired. And I'm Lauren Good. I'm a senior writer at Wired. We're also joined this week by Bloomberg reporter and author Mark Bergen. Hello, Mark. Hello. Thanks for having me. Do I need to share a disclaimer that I consider Mark a friend and a sometimes surf buddy? Like we've attempted to surf together a couple of times at Bolinas. <laughs> yes, go ahead and share the Important disclaimer. disclaimer. Okay. <laughs> uh, but we'll cast that aside for professional, professional one right now. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, we've actually invited Mark on the show this week to talk about his new book, which is all about YouTube. Yes. And of course, YouTube is the biggest name in video streaming on the internet. People watch more than a billion hours of content on YouTube every single day. The service has had a long and twisty journey from a small startup in a rat-infested San Mateo office to the Google-owned juggernaut that it is today. And along the way, it has launched the careers of thousands of YouTube stars, for better and for worse. It's also served as a fountain of joy and entertainment for millions, as well as the source of misinformation and conspiracy theories for millions. Mark, you go into all all of this and more in your new book. It's called Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. It comes out on September 6th. So let's start with that title. How chaotic of a rise are we talking about here? Pretty damn chaotic. Um, I, I, I think so. I knew that. I mean, I part of the reason that I wrote this book is I've been covering Google uh, since 2015, and I was covering these uh, TikToks of, of firestorms, uh, largely after 2016, 
uh, at YouTube and, you know, they had a major advertising boycott. They had uh, endless creator scandals, some of their biggest stars. They had uh, in, in a very tragic moment, the only company, social media company, they had a disgruntled creator come to the campus with a gun and start shooting. Um, and and all these incidents, right, uh, and during this these couple of years in particular, 2017, uh, and not to mention some of the strangest kids material that the internet has ever seen. Uh, I knew at the time that it was all deeply strange. I realized I was just scratching the surface and and put this book together uh, in part because I thought it was an enormously important and fascinating story uh, that hadn't been told yet. And it really is fascinating. It's changed so much of how we consume video online. In the second half of this podcast, we're going to talk to you about what we'd like to call future stuff, you know, YouTube today and competitors and algorithms and all that. But I want to take it back to the very beginning, because in your book, you write that early on, the founders of YouTube couldn't decide if this was basically going to be a hot or not site, more of a social network or a repository for inane videos. What tipped the original founders in the latter direction? It, it is kind of funny that the two biggest sites, Facebook and, and YouTube on the internet, started off as dating websites. Uh, pretty <laughs> telling from that time of the, of the era of the internet. There was this debate uh, between basically being this sort of like a Flickr model, right? Flickr at the time had just sold to Yahoo when when YouTube started. And, and that so it was, I think it was around 25 million. And that seemed huge, right? You know, this was a year later, uh, YouTube would go for, for over one and a half billion. But they had, this, they had this idea that it could be this sort of creative place where people are uploading, um, you know, what you were doing, Lauren, in, in, in Brooklyn, right? Like really creative shorts. Or we might be like, why else would people want to share video? They might want to get a date, right? So these are the kind of two. Uh, there was this really assumption about like, why are people, they knew this was a problem about sharing video files on, online. But I think uh, certainly, you know, there wasn't this idea that people would want to upload or watch um, amateur or video. Uh, I think that the tipping point came in, the, in that first summer, you know, uh, MySpace, which was the hottest place online then. To take, take, take us back, MySpace was a, a big driver for YouTube's early growth, in part because you, YouTube had a, a genius idea to be able to embed their video players anywhere on the internet. They started sticking them on comments and, and popular MySpace um, channels, and then you had a lot of people. Uh, MySpace at that point didn't really have robust uh, video sharing, and this was so. I think you had this sort of organic spread where there were early people experimenting with YouTube. Uh, it's in, in it sort of echoes what we've seen on TikTok the past few years, where it's this creative canvas for people to try things out, people who've never had a career in media before. Uh, and I think once the YouTube uh, early team saw that take off, they're like, this is the direction we're going to go in. Uh, one of the big innovations early on was the recommendation engine, you know, like after you finish watching a video or while you're watching a video that shows the YouTube page shows some other related videos that you can watch next. Uh, recommended videos have long been both a headache and a boon for YouTube over the years. Um, tell us a bit how that's evolved. Yeah, I think probably more of a, of a boon than anything, to be honest, even even though despite the very large headaches. Um, this was a... Uh, it was it was another sort of early innovation that that let YouTube leapfrog um, the competitors at the time, right? These, these like also rans from Blip TV, Rever, Meta Cafe was around then, I think. Um, you know, Microsoft, Google Video. The, the early chapters of the book talk about um, how Google Video was uh, at one point. YouTube, like when YouTube had just started, and then Google Video announces like call for user generated video, and, and YouTube's like. 
I believe the exact quote. Uh, can I say this on, on air? Uh, oh, yeah. Chad, Jared Hurley says like, ah, oh, fuck in his recollection. Um, <laughs> and uh, is it, you know, it seemed like Google was a, a genuine threat. This was the right out a year after um, the IPO. Um, so anyway, sorry, the, the related videos were this, uh, this new functionality that I think from early on were driving a lot of traffic and like, it's a convenient way. It's like a, the panels are right beside you. The, the, it was relatively rudimentary, especially from, from our vantage point now, uh, it was this sort of, if people who like this also like this, right? Like, and, uh, early on, you know, the engineer told me like they can't, they ran into like the Justin Bieber problem where like, it was like the Kevin Bacon game, right? Where like, mm-hmm. but it was every two videos you land on a Bieber, uh, or like every two videos you land on a cat or a bikini. Like that was the, another term that I heard, right? Like, um, cats were big, uh, like YouTube early on decided they're going to ban pornography and graphic sex, but like sex, everything that went up to the line and, and was allowed on the platform was also really popular, uh, for obvious reasons. Um, and so I, I like, they really struggled to get that right. And a lot of the decision-making, uh, and YouTube's uh, earliest years were like, how are we going to feed videos to people that they're going to want to watch? And another important aspect of this early YouTube was they actually had a team of community managers. This is like a forgotten history that I, I didn't know at all. This team of community managers that were curating the homepage and they were like picking interesting videos and they kind of served, they, they were called community managers. They kind of served as editors. A colleague called them like cool hunters. And, and, and they were picking these videos that uh, a lot of them, they would, uh, surface under the homepage and then kind of mint stars uh, or virality uh, out of that process. And and people were visiting youtube.com, I think more than they do now, which it's a lot of like, it's obviously moved to algorithmic feeds and um, mm-hmm. the world we live in mm-hmm. today. Speaking of things being rudimentary, so from the earliest days, YouTube did have content moderation. It started with an employee named Heather Gillette, and that was even not her official job, but she was asked to keep an eye out for problematic videos. And some of the early videos were really, really bad. Do you think that the YouTube founders had enough foresight around content moderation? Was it possible back then to envision that this platform would become as huge as it has yeah, I don't. I think no. It's. I don't think. Well, I'm not sure it was possible. Then they said it. Like Steve Chen has talked about this. Um, he, he, I spoke to him, and he said this, and he said this other places. Like we didn't foresee this this coming, right? Both the the like economic opportunities and the size of the creator economy, and then the like problems of moderation. That being said, there was an early team like Heather, Micah Schaefer uh, was one of the early policy managers there. And they had a background, like Micah had come up with this sort of live journal culture and was aware of like these deep recesses, these online communities that were forming, as well as the weird backwaters of the internet. Uh, one of the anecdotes in the book is like this, the YouTube moderation team early on, they would like spend time hanging out on 4chan, right? And so they knew at one point, like 4chaners had said, oh, we're going to troll YouTube and just up spam them with a bunch of porn. They saw this coming because they were hanging out on 4chan. So I like, and the people at that time kind of said like, we had like impressively robust content moderation rules. I mean, a lot of it, it wasn't what we have today, but it is impressive given that there really wasn't no precedence for this. Like there was nothing at this scale to do moderation, not just text, but what YouTube has is video, right? Which is visual. Um, it's just a much more complicated medium. And so I think it was actually a very impressive feat to be able to pull that off. Uh, that being said, like certainly didn't, didn't anticipate, you know, there was no concept of fake news 
no like no kind of concept then that propaganda would spread uh, any any number of problems we've we've had in recent years. So YouTube is also part of probably one of the most important acquisitions in tech history. How did the Google acquisition all come about? Great question. The Denny's. Um, there's the, the, the famous scene that uh, they, this is, I, I do appreciate this about mm-hmm. the, the YouTube founders. They like were, were being courted by many companies at the time. Uh, Yahoo and Google were the two main uh, quarters. Uh, they had met with Yahoo, I believe, first executives at this, like to, in order to be discreet, this Denny's in the Valley. And then they were like, what if it, wouldn't it be funny if we had uh, the meeting with Google at the exact same Denny's? And they did. Uh, so they have they they shared Sequoia was a similar investor. You, there was some um, evidence that came up in these congressional filings that Larry Page, who was uh, Google's co-founder, had his eyes on YouTube as as early as, as I think late December of, of 2005, which is pretty remarkable. Uh, and from people I talked to, like the founders of Google were invested in YouTube largely for its uh, capacity as a search engine, uh, and it's still today is the second largest search engine in the world. Behind Google, which don't think of it that way, you know they think about this. That Google was well aware that that video they ha- the video was the future of the internet, or, and uh, they were like investing in Google Video. Uh, Google Video didn't was kind of a not a failed product, but it was certainly meager compared to to YouTube. Um, there's an email that surfaced in, in files that Eric Schmidt, the CEO of, of Google, was like YouTube and MySpace is like cleaning our clocks, and so this was an early example of Google couldn't build this, so they went out and bought it. Oh, the classic Silicon Valley playbook. Why build it? Just buy it. Yeah, just buy it. <laughs> and obviously, YouTube became a huge part of Google's search engine. It's really funny looking back at it now, mm-hmm. like 15 years on, $1.68 billion feels exceedingly small. Oh, that's, yeah. It's like a garage sale. Yeah, it really is. <laughs> Just shows you how far how far into the no pun intended Silicon Valley garages. Oh yeah, look at you. All right, all right, right. yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. I'm Reid Hoffman, and I'm Aria Finger. If you're interested in learning about how technology and humanity can come together to make a better future, then Possible is for you. We invite ambitious builders and deep thinkers like Trevor Noah, Kara Swisher, Sam Altman and so many more. Help us sketch out the brightest version of the future and what it will take to get there. If you want to be part of the future today, then subscribe to Possible wherever you listen to podcasts. We've talked about how YouTube came to be, so now let's talk about where it's going. The platform still dominates on-demand video on the internet. But lately, it has faced tough competition from the likes of TikTok and Twitch. Also, YouTube's sheer size has been unwieldy, and some of the changes it has made over the years have angered and alienated both its user base and the people making its videos. So Mark, let's talk about what's next for YouTube. What do they do? Do they keep investing in YouTube shorts until it beats TikTok or dies trying? (laughs) Yes. Um, I, I think, I mean, you're seeing a little bit, I, you guys had a, an episode on about reels, uh, recently and it's, uh, YouTube is, I think can, can afford to make similar changes because it's a video platform, right? So it's not too much of a, for, for users, it's, it's not that sort of like abrupt change when they, when they kind of, you see a lot more shorts in your app, right? Uh, in, in part, cause you're used to seeing video, but it has been dramatic, at least for me. And I'm, I think a lot of other viewers and, 
and they're encouraging um, creators to make a lot more shorts. They're about to flip the switch, presumably uh, by the end of the year for monetization for shorts. So putting in like sponsored shorts in between your your shorts. Hmm. Um, I think one one uh, interesting question that YouTube hasn't solved. So YouTube's business model has been since 2007, primarily like splitting the ad revenue uh, from this from the ads that appear before or in, during a, a video with shorts. Uh, they don't, as far as I know, they haven't solved the problem of which creator gets credit for the ad. Is it the one right before you see it or right after? Mm-hmm. And the book gets into like this, uh, what I think was a really fascinating insight into, you know, YouTube at one point had debate, had this extensive debate and considered uh, sort of tearing up this payment system and, and paying out the way TikTok does, which is based on engagement. So not whether or not there's an ad that runs before your video, but whether you, just the, the type of engagement, whether it's typically like how long and often people watch, likes, comments, subscriptions, all the, the usual bells and whistles. They stopped that program for a variety of reasons, partially because this was during the time when when Congress, when advertisers, when the press was like, oh, wait, social media, like maybe uh, just measuring uh, engagement has all sorts of unintended consequences mm-hmm. and perverse uh, incentives and is driving society in ways we don't want it to, to go. So, yes, I, th- I do think like I don't think they're giving up on shorts. You know, YouTube it, it did have stories, if you recall, even that they've, they've more or less dropped that. I don't think they had a big adoption with creators or viewers. Um I think they're investing a lot more in shorts and it'd be hard to see them like let that go. But but TikTok is a, is a real viable threat. Uh, I mean, something that's important to remember is, you know, as far as I know, TikTok is, is still banned in like YouTube's biggest market, which is India. And YouTube has more monthly viewers in India than the United States has people in the country. Um, so, wow. Wow. Like, so YouTube's future is in many ways, like in India and Brazil, it's the only US media service, internet service operating in Russia today. Still, like I, I think their future is is global and will continue to be global, uh, which has all sorts of opportunities and uh, pratfalls. How censored is it in Russia? Uh, you know, I haven't been recently, so um, sorry. <laughs> My sense is it's not that heavily censored. Hmm. They haven't caved to um, pressure. They certainly caved to, to some pressure to to remove videos, um, but you know, I th- I'm pretty sure like Russian. If you're in Russia, you don't need a VPN to access YouTube to see, you know, there's a, uh, a bunch of uh, like the BBC Russian footage, right? Like I'm pretty sure Navalny, the opposition critic, I think his channel is still mm-hmm. active in Russia and he's a big, um, you know, Russia is a really interesting case study in, in uh, where YouTube has been both a, a major tool for the state run media or like Russia Today is a hugely popular YouTube channel. Uh, as well as like opposition and critics and voices that are uh, not allowed on the normal channels of, of media uh, do have a voice on YouTube. And so I think it's a really fascinating, like, double-edged sword for, for YouTube. And YouTube is not in China, correct? Uh, YouTube is not in China. I do have some reporting that they tried, mm-hmm. but never went uh, during that time when Google was, was operating in mainland China. So, uh, no, YouTube is not in China. I will put a lot of money to say that. I mean, who knows what happened in the future, but I don't, as far as I know, they're not like, uh, Google's not holding out hope for getting back into China. Mm-hmm. So, Back to the competitive landscape quickly. Someone asked recently, like randomly, if I would ever start a YouTube channel. And I said no for for sort of obvious reasons, like in the sense that it feels really hard to break through these Mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. And we can even look to our own Condé Nast brands as an example. Wired has millions of YouTube followers. So does Vogue. So does Architectural Digest, right? But 
because of the way the algorithms work, one, they're sort of a black box. And two, it seems like once you've already established a really successful platform or viewership, like you have a certain amount of audience, then the, like the videos sort of feed each other. And then once you try something new or you insert something into a feed or try to launch a new channel that doesn't, doesn't necessarily have a huge following, it sort of drags down the rest of a brand, right? So I'm wondering how the creators you talk to feel these days about trying to start anything new on YouTube, whether they have an established presence or they don't. It is really hard. I think that's a major reason why TikTok has taken off. Uh, it's just a discovery engine. And, and you could say like, um, you could say that that ByteDance TikTok's parent company has just like marvelous AI. And then it's just YouTube is a really crowded place, to your point. Um, mm -hmm. And it's hard to break through in a way that it was a few years ago. That being said, you know, let's Mr. Beast is a fascinating case study. Uh, he's one of the world's biggest YouTubers, if not the biggest. Uh, he started like a gaming channel um, and that like grew phenomenally, right? And he, Mr. Beast is sort of like, you can go out and do this. All you need is like to understand how to do thumbnails well, like how to write, you know, you sort of need to approach YouTube uh, as you, as if you were a computer scientist, right? Which is like you optimize, you A-B test everything. And like, I think the best YouTubers know this, they're, they're mono, monomaniacal in this fixation. Mr. Beast mm -hmm. is a great example of that. Like, it's and I think that's what hopefully the book is driving home too is like this is a computer science company that's running the world's biggest media service right and so you in order to be successful you kind of have to think like a an engineer and you have to think like a machine uh, which I think saps some of the humanity from it but I think I do think there's potential to to grow on, on YouTube um, you know the other direction that they're moving in kind of is that they've uh, adapted channel memberships and like basically tried to copy the patreon model a little bit i don't you know it's so funny like youtube was really talking about this a lot and and then now they're they've just the, their eye of sauron has moved to tiktok or something but um in that way like there was a sense of oh maybe we don't need maybe every youtuber doesn't need to have tens of millions of subscribers in order to like have a sustainable media business uh, maybe they can you know have a patreon model like maybe they can have channel memberships get like brand deals and and sell merchandise and there are YouTubers who have like done pretty well succeeding, like staying in like a nice bubble. Um, but I think just the, the incentives of the platform are like you can and should like get as large as you can as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So uh, you touched on games briefly, and I, I have a, a larger question about gaming strategy because, uh, you know, if you go on YouTube and you search for games, there's a lot of game reviews, playthroughs, obviously a ton of Minecraft videos. Um and they do have a, they do have a big section of the website, YouTube Gaming, for streaming games. But when it comes to streaming games, uh, there are platforms like Twitch and, to a lesser extent, Discord that have a very strong foothold. So what do we think the future of streaming games looks like on YouTube? Yeah, it's a really good question. It sort of, I think one way you could look at it is that YouTube certainly dropped the ball in the sense that they didn't invest in this significant portion of their platform gaming. And, and so like you see TikTok and, and Discord, Roblox even like jumping into that space. Uh, at the same time, you know, YouTube has signed a lot of Twitch streamers recently to these these deals. They've, um, they've been investing in sort of like a gaming vertical. I mean, a long time ago, they were thinking about doing separate apps for music and kids and gaming and, um, you know, their music, the experiment sort of went through many different iterations and, and they have a kid's app 
Um, but gaming, I don't, I don't, I could be, they could announce tomorrow a new gaming app, but I think it's like part of central part of YouTube. And so I think they're investing in it a lot more. You know, I believe a couple weeks ago, they announced, uh, they used to do YouTube rewind at the end of the year, which was like this, uh, feel good summary of the year best hits with all the creators. They stopped it in 2018 after the book gets into this, some like serious, like the big blowback from their, from their creator base and its fans, Mm -hmm. the most disliked video ever. Um, <laughs> topping Bieber, uh, which is quite an accomplishment. But now this year, there's like, oh, we're going to do this in, in gaming, uh, which to me suggests like, oh, uh, we are prioritizing this in part because there's a lot more competition uh, in, in, in uh, Facebook meta is moving into this world too. So I, I think the story of YouTube in some ways is like, oh, it'll, it'll start to put resources in areas like all companies when it has competition uh, mm-hmm. and when not, it, it tends to lag. Behind. Yeah, like YouTube will launch new products, right? It launched stories, so it didn't really take off. It's got shorts right now. I just got an email the other day about YouTube doing podcasts, right? So anytime it sees like people going for this grab of, of attention, it's going to do something similar, right? Uh, I that's totally podcast is a super fascinating example. Like uh yeah, it, it's because it's one of those things that people are probably using it for oh organically God, already. Like they're it, watching podcast totally, videos. Yes. And it, then right. My my colleague Lucas Shaw says this all the time is like YouTube is the biggest music service. No one talks about. You probably mm-hmm. say the same thing for podcasts. Part of this is like it, without the company really doing anything, <laughs> like almost. Uh, I think in music they did a lot of work to like get the record labels to come on, and there's a lot of behind the scenes work there. But in, in in podcasts, I think they're making the functionality. So like once you finish recording this podcast, like with a button, you can just like upload it to to, to YouTube. I don't think we're talking enough about like one that's just gonna make continue to make YouTube bigger, but like content moderation challenges, right? Or just... Yes, 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 yes. Um, I'm like, this was the thing we had to come back to. And so, you know... <laughs> this is really YouTube's biggest challenge. Uh, and and they're kind of going into the podcasting and saying like, podcasting is a place where you just get hours and hours of you know, people like me just droning on. <laughs> um, and and that's uh, just uh, another drop in the, in, in the large ocean that is that is YouTube. And as far as we know, you're not peddling misinformation, Mark. As far so, as you know. As far uh, as no, we know. I'm upholding the standards of journalism that we practice at Bloomberg News. That's right. One person who we haven't talked about yet, but we absolutely need to, is YouTube CEO Susan Wojcicki. Because when things are going great for YouTube, all praise goes to Susan. But when YouTube is struggling with its content moderation and some really, really serious issues around content moderation, then that falls to Susan as well. How is she viewed as a CEO? Uh, yeah, really excellent question that a lot of people in who worked at YouTube still struggle to answer. I think. Um, yeah, I, I'll I'll do you know the classic journalism both sides here. Like I think the the criticism that's most valid to me and I include in the book is from YouTubers like Hank Green, been around for a long time, people who had senior leadership, people at the company that there were many blind spots, like did not anticipate uh, like respond to creator concerns around harassment, like so many of the major issues that that YouTube has faced in the past few years, whether like misinformation, like just wild sort of drama channels and misbehaving creators, the weirdest kid stuff on the platform. YouTubers saw this first, like they were making videos about this, like that YouTube watched this platform in a way that the company never really has. Um, and so I, I think, and, and Susan is, was a Google ads executive, has done a phenomenal job. Like if you're a, an Alphabet shareholder, you are happy with Susan Wojcicki's leadership at YouTube. From 20, like 2017 to last year, it went from $8 billion ads business to $29 billion 
um, which is remarkable given that advertisers were like boycotting for most of 2017. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that that is, and I think you know she has she is not Zuckerberg, she is not Sheryl Sandberg. She very intentionally stays out of the limelight, and so maybe you know I, I, that is for some of her defenders. Uh, a savvy move. You don't want. You don't necessarily want a charismatic CEO of YouTube. You want someone who can handle these complicated problems and, and sustain a, a business that keeps growing, that keeps Wall Street happy. That being said, I think like uh, she's a very much a Googler. Google was founded in her garage um, and has many of the like. Uh, I think this the perspectives that that make YouTube scale really well as a technology platform, uh, and some of the key blind spots that Google has. Uh, whether it's basically being able to service this gigantic creator class that they have and provide them with like real support uh, and being aware of some of the unintended consequences uh, and and some of the like societal impact of the platform. All right, Mark, thanks for all this great discussion. Let's take a break. And when we come back, we'll do our recommendations. Hi, I'm Jeremy Larson, the Reviews Director of Pitchfork, and this podcast is supported by Pitchfork Music Festival. Pitchfork Music Festival will take place July 19th through the 21st at Union Park in Chicago, Illinois. This year's lineup features Jamie XX, Alanis Morissette, Black Pumas, Carly Rae Jepsen, Brittany Howard, Jay Paul, Muna, Jesse Ware, 100 Gex, and many more. The festival also features diverse vendors as well as specialty record, poster, and craft fairs and works to support local businesses while promoting the Chicago arts and food communities as a whole. For more information on tickets and lineup, visit pitchforkmusicfestival.com. Okay, this is the part of the show where we go around the table and we ask everybody to recommend a thing that our listeners might enjoy. Mark, as our guest, you get to go first. What is your recommendation? Thank you. I will stay on brand. I will recommend a YouTube channel. Uh, maybe many of your listeners know Bill Wirtz, but Bill Wirtz is my favorite YouTuber and he's out cranking out content. Uh, history of the world, uh, I guess, is He does his history best. of the world videos? That, one, that one's his most popular. Um, oh, but okay. but like his he he primarily does shorts and then um, W U R T Z is an animation. He's sort of like the Norm Macdonald of YouTube and like Norm Macdonald's like the comedian's comedian, right? He's like the YouTuber's YouTuber. <laughs> meta meta. Uh, um, and has this like weird irreverent brilliance that I think is the best part of YouTube and part of the reason I wrote the book is to like fight for that. Nice, nice. So what's his channel? Is it just his name? I think so. I don't know. I'm not Sorry. his manager. Okay, cool. Uh, Lauren, what is your recommendation? Uh, My recommendation is another book this week. Am I allowed to recommend a book on top of Mark's book? Yes, of course. Okay, so after you have finished Mark's book. (laughs) Okay, thank you. And you're looking for a little bit of a a different genre or a palate cleanser, I recommend Normal Family by Krista Bilton. It is a memoir about how she came to know and love her 35 siblings, although there are many more siblings than that out there in the world. And it's really, I saw the book described as a kind of love letter to her mother. And I agree with that assessment of it. It's a beautifully written and compelling book about how her mother, um, living in LA, this was in the late 70s, early 80s, found a sperm donor, a man who she met at a hair salon, 
and decided this was the man who was going to be her sperm donor. And um, they made an agreement and she asked him not to donate to anybody else, which he agreed to do. And then, of course, he went to the cryobank and made like a whole bunch of deposits. He was incredibly prolific. And as such, Krista, who I happen to know, um, ends up with many, many siblings. One sister who she knows growing up and grows up alongside. And it was it was a pretty tumultuous childhood. But um, but then she comes to find out later on that her father was, in fact, this prolific sperm donor. And it's, uh, yeah, it's just a beautiful story about family and, um, I don't know, loving your family despite all of it. It's, you know, trials and tribulations and weirdness. A lot of us feel like, yeah, anyway, it's a great book. <laughs> Very cool. I, I really, I'm, I've really, really enjoyed this book and I highly recommend it. Awesome. Yes. Mike, what's your recommendation? Uh, my recommendation is a Substack newsletter. It's a free Substack newsletter. It's called 15C. And it's called 15C because it's about climate change. Mm -hmm. And 1.5 degrees Celsius is like the measurement that we use that if we can keep the Earth from heating less than 1.5 degrees Celsius, we can probably, as a species, manageably survive the climate crisis. Uh, it's pretty grim to consider that we're probably going to overshoot that number by one or two degrees Celsius. But this Substack is a newsletter. It comes out maybe once a week or so and gives you really great advice for how you personally, like as a human being and consumer of goods, can help do your part to keep us under 1.5 C. It's written by a guy named Joe Brown. Uh, who's a journalist who we all know, I'm sure, because uh, he used to work here at Wired. Mm -hmm. He used to be on the show. He's been in the technology journalism industry for a while, but uh, now he has this new newsletter and it's excellent. Uh, it's been going for about a year. It's filled with all kinds of great advice. He had a really nice series recently about plastic and how you can get plastic out of your life uh, and why it's very important for you to do that. Uh, he had one just last week about heat pumps and like how heat pumps work. Mm -hmm, that was very good. And why you may want to install one in your home now mm -hmm. that you can get a tax break for it. So uh, yeah. He also advises to eat the tops of strawberries. Which you should. Absolutely. I couldn't do it. I tried. Yeah. Sorry, the holes. Joe. You just, okay. Next time you're looking at a strawberry, <laughs> pop the whole thing in your mouth. Okay. It is the only way to eat a strawberry because uh, yeah, it's, I don't know. It's like, I, I don't like to have pure pleasure in my life. I like to make sure that every every instance of pleasure is also accompanied by a slight amount of discomfort. Right. Yeah. Just like a little sense if there's like a little bit of a Brillo pad in your mouth as you're eating the strawberry. It's, it's sweet, a, sweet berry. Yeah. 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 It's, it's important. Normal. It's important. Anyway, 1-5-C. And that's O-N-E, the numeral five, and then the letter C is the name of the substack. It is a great newsletter. Yeah. Subscribe. Like, comment, and subscribe. <laughs> nice. Uh, right. Like how I brought that back? Thank you. I did that Full for circle. you, Mark. I, yep. Yes. Very much appreciate that. Mark's book is called Like, Comment, Subscribe, Inside YouTube's Chaotic Rise to World Domination. It is out September 6th. Thanks again, Mark, for joining us. Thank you for having me. That was super fun. Of course. And thank you all for listening. If you have feedback, you can find all of us on Twitter. Just check the show notes or just leave a comment on Wired's YouTube channel because we definitely check those. Our producer is Boone Ashworth. We will be back next week. Until then, goodbye.
Want a new podcast to look forward to each week? One that's entertaining, informative, and packed with actionable content? Come on, of course you do. Introducing The Jordan Harbinger Show. The Jordan Harbinger Show, which Apple named one of its best of 2018, is aimed at making you a better informed, more critical thinker so you can get a sense of how the world actually works and come to your own conclusions about what's happening, even inside your own brain. Jordan dives into the minds of fascinating people, from athletes, authors, and scientists, to mobsters, spies, and hostage negotiators. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R, in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.